Good afternoon, Spark. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks to the team, as always, for leading us. We're so grateful and thankful for your participation and contribution to our services. If you are brand new to Spark, just found us. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're just so glad that you're here. Special welcome to you. If you have any questions about Spark, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. We would love to answer any questions that you have, get to know you a little bit better, and allow you to get to know us. We are at the end of an Ephesians series. We're in chapter six, and we've come a long way. And before I get into the teaching today, um, what I'd like to do is just remind us a little bit of where we've been and what brought us here. We in Christ know a different world. We belong to a different kingdom. In Christ, we are adopted as sons and daughters of the King. In Christ, we are loved, redeemed, forgiven, reconciled, chosen. In Christ, we have new life, a new family, a new home, a new inheritance that is fully ours. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. We see this theme over and over and over again. Dead people can live again. Dead people can live again. And even if we do die, our lives still continue on. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the final putting to rights of all things. In light of the resurrection, the church must never stop reminding the world and the world's rulers and authorities that they themselves will be held to account and that they are called to do justice and bring wise healing order to God's world ahead of that day. This mysterious knowledge changes our understanding of God in His entire universe. With it, Jesus doesn't reveal something for us to ponder, no. With this knowledge, Jesus initiates us into a whole new world, into a whole new way of living, into a whole new community. This is what we mean when we talk about sort of like that all you need is love. It's not a pithy saying, it's being rooted and firmly established in this love the Father has for us that's on display through the Son. This is the marker of what it is to be a Christian. That we might be in awe and astounded at how wide, how long, how high, and how deep Christ's love really is, even though we'll never understand it. You know, it's important not to miss out on a Jesus who is pushing us to be more inclusive than we could have possibly imagined. Who is your family? Who do you hold sacred space with? What walls are you tearing down? Who are you pushing to include that the rest of us are overlooking? What is the Spirit doing through you? But it is fundamentally true that that is the impulse of humanity. I see it my way. This is my culture. This is my faith. This is my spirituality. And Paul is arguing, no, it's not. There is one God, one Spirit, one baptism, one Lord. We are all together. We are family. Which means that that person who doesn't do it your way brings something to the table and you become a better person. Paul's out is that this recognition changes everything. It changes the way you walk. It changes the way you talk. It changes whether or how you forgive. It changes the power structures in the world. It holds slave owners and husbands and parents accountable in worlds where they are given authoritarian control over people. It affects the way we fight injustice in the world. It changes everything. That is how Paul's message unfolds in this context. Because if I understand the text and 
the way of Jesus. It's always pushing forward. But if I'm honest, I don't want to imitate God. I don't want to imitate the Messiah who said, forgive them for they know not what they do. If I'm really, really honest, I don't like this, but this is a spiritual practice that I have that helps me keep my own sanity and maybe it helps solve the rage. But a practice I've had for a very long time in these situations is I oftentimes pray for the offending parties in the situation. I pray because I know that their lives are forever changed, even with the loss of life. We are meant to build this kingdom of God and to deliver Jesus and his message of love and inclusion to the world around us. But it will come at a personal cost. It will require us to see ourselves as God does. It will require us to develop a renewed appreciation and joy for the person of Jesus that we share with others. And it will mean that we offer the choice to receive the good news or return it to sender. And we do that with humility. What you see here is a complete upending of the system, the upending of the social structure. And that's because Paul added a new ingredient to the household codes that changed their entire flavor. And that was Jesus. And when put into practice, these Christianized household codes based on submitting to each other would break down rather than reinforce the hierarchical boundaries between husband and wife, master and slave, parent and child. And with Jesus at the center, all the old boundaries break down and the hierarchies begin to blur. So... All of these teachings that we've had, and in fact, our entire existence as a church that is really doing our best to push forward and advance the way of Jesus, what we have to understand is that none of this is just a religious fad or some new religious cult or some sort of new religious movement. In fact, some scholars might not even use the word religion to describe the early Jesus movement. What this is, what all of that is, is a new vision of humanity. It is a way of advancing, a whole new way of being in this world. And especially in this time, with all of the disruptions that we are experiencing, with all of the injustices that we are continually fighting against, um, with all of this struggle that we are engaged with, this is, this is still what we are doing. We are trying to advance a whole new vision of humanity, not just try to fix a couple things here or there or try to get people to be a little bit more pious or religiously devout. That, that is not the, the sum base of the agenda. The agenda here is to push forward a whole new vision of humanity, a new way of being in this world. But as we know, and as the early followers of Jesus knew, it's a fight. It is a struggle. And in fact, this is exactly how Ephesians ends. In chapter 6, starting in verse 10, it reads, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the methods of the devil. For our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As for shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace, of shalom. With all of these, take the shield of faith, of trust with you, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Friends, my title is The Struggle is Real. The Struggle is Real. And again, just to be clear, our struggle is not just an internal, inside, personal struggle, although that is part of it. No, this is an existential struggle. This is a wrestling. It's a battle to determine what kind of life is ultimately going to prevail. This is an existential wrestling. And the thing that he mentions that we are fighting against, notice, is not blood and flesh. It is not blood and flesh. Rather, our fight is against spiritual forces, cosmic powers, rulers, and authorities. This is the thing I want to focus in on. Because in American religion, in a lot of Christian circles, and in a lot of the expressions that many of us grew up in, because of the way in which we've been taught these passages, the, the thing that we conceive when we hear of these words, the spiritual forces and rulers and authorities, this is often the image that we see. It's an image of some sort of invisible force outside of this universe that is oppressing us. It actually comes from a word in Greek uh, called demon, which is where we get our word demon. And these are the images that we often see some sort of angelic beings, some sort of devils roaming around, and a cosmic war that is being fought somewhere in the heavenlies. And because these forces are fighting each other up there, they are influencing essentially the hell that we are existing, uh, having an existence down here. Now, what we have to understand is that Paul, uh, the writer of Ephesians, and many of the writers of the New Testament we're using apocalyptic language. Now, we've talked about apocalyptic before. Again, it doesn't mean the end of the space-time continuum when all hell breaks loose, although that is part of the imagery. Apocalyptic just simply means an unveiling, a revealing, uh, a, a, an exposing to our consciousness what we couldn't see before. And so when the writer is using this wor these words like um, rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces, it feels very much like this same kind of language. But here's the thing that we have to understand about this language, is that what the New Testament writers seem to be doing is flipping the script. While the ancient Greek gods and goddesses, like Zeus and Hera and Ares and Athene and others, were personifications of these forces, and they still lived up in the heavenlies, what the biblical writers seem to be doing is taking that language and shifting it and bringing it further down here to earth while still using that same kind of language. Because in that ancient mind, to use cosmic language was the only way that you could describe what in the world is going on down here. 
N.T. Wright writes this in his book, The New Testament and the People of God. Writers borrowed all the appropriate imagery they could to show the immense significance with which the coming historical events would be charged. How else could they give voice to the full meaning of what was to take place? And so they use language such as cosmic powers, spiritual forces, demons and devils and dragons and all these kinds of stuff. By the way, we do something similar. It's a little bit more tame in some places. For example, we will say that was a God moment that I shall never forget. Um, we often sometimes use phrases like there's something new in the air. And if it's something bad, we will sometimes use a phrase like, the devil made me do it. We still do this today. We sometimes appeal to the heavenlies. We appeal to the supernatural. We appeal to the invisible outside realm. But the early Christian movement did something radical. By using that cosmic language to describe things that are happening here on earth, they weren't, simply, they weren't simply trying to attribute all of that to the cosmic world. They were trying to strip the cosmic world of the power that many humans were giving it. They were trying to take away the centrality of our focus from the heavenly portions down here on earth. And this is exactly what's happening in Ephesians. It is a phrase that scholars use called demythologize. They are removing the mythological elements that people understood. So people are using cosmic language, but they're trying to imbue it with a whole new way of thinking about these forces, no longer in, in just, should I say, spiritual terms, but they're now using it to describe something very earthly, something very human. It's not flesh and bones, meaning it's not just people, but it is here and it is among us. Hendrik Burkhoff writes in his book, Christ and the Powers. It is obvious that for Paul, the powers are something quite different from what the Jewish apocalyptic circles had in mind. It shows that in comparison to the apocalypticists, here's the big word, a certain demythologizing has taken place in Paul's thought. In short, the apocalypse is to think primarily of the principalities and powers as heavenly angels. Paul sees them as structures of earthly existence. Catch this. This is what he's saying. While Christians to, still to this day and many people like to mythologize the things that we feel here and, and sense here and experience here, what Paul is doing, what the writer of Ephesians is doing, is demythologizing it. Do not just simply appeal to the cosmic realm or the invisible realm as the sole focus for what our struggle is against. No, appeal to something that exists right here, right on earth. That is the appeal. Now, this phrase, rulers and authorities, has actually been used in several places throughout the New Testament. Let me just give you one example specific to Jesus. In Colossians, it says this. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed or stripped the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. That phrase, stripped, is referring specifically to the crucifixion. The phrase, rulers and authorities, is used there. Not to describe some sort of devil out there, 
some sort of cosmic battle up there only. He's using that phraseology to describe the Roman Empire that is doing the crucifixion. And in some radical, uh, spiritual, Jesus jujitsu way, he turns the entire thing on its head. Crucifixion in Roman idea is supposed to embarrass and strip the crucified from any dignity, any worth, any value. It was to make a humiliation of the person who was crucified. And what the writer of Colossians is saying is that in Jesus, the crucifixion flipped all of that on its head and actually stripped, and here's the key phrase, the rulers and the authorities, made a public example of them, of the Roman Empire, triumphing over the Roman Empire. What Jesus did is he flipped the script. But here's the key point for our message today. The rulers and the authorities wasn't just the devil wasn't just some sort of principalities, wasn't just some sort of demon. It was the Roman Empire specifically that Jesus was abending, flipping over, stripping, humiliating, and making a public example of. The rulers and the authorities in the New Testament and in this ending passage in Ephesians are the systems of governance here. The phrase that Hendrik Burkhoff uses, the structures of earthly existence. He goes on to write, these powers unify men yet separate us from God. And let me just, that that is a brilliant insight. We recognize that these governments, these systems, these states, these laws, the legislation, they bring us together. But the problem is that these powers, these systems, these systems of earthly structures separate us from the ultimate vision of humanity that God is pushing forward into this world. The state, politics, class, Social struggle, national interest, public opinion, accepted morality, and the ideas of decency, humanity, democracy, these give unity and direction to thousands of lives. But ultimately, they separate us from God. So, what Burkhoff is saying is the writers of the New Testament saw all of those things as the rulers, the authorities, the powers, the cosmic forces. So maybe we could reconceive Ephesians chapter 6 in this particular way. For our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers who happen to be the state, the government, the powers, against the authorities, which happens to be the political systems or, or the laws that are in place, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, which are the institutionalized racism and marginalization of black indigenous people of color and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, which are things like individualism, nationalism, sexism, and classism. My friends, these are the things that our struggle is against. Encoded in our tradition is a view of humanity that is brilliant and beautiful. All of that stuff that we talked about before, about equality, about tearing down the walls of separation, about being adopted together as God's sons and daughters. And the thing that we are fighting and struggling against to see that vision become realized are these systems and these structures of existence here on earth. And these systems let us believe 
that we have found the meaning of existence, but the reality is they really estrange us from true meaning. These are the things that we are struggling. This struggle is real. And our text, our tradition fully recognizes that those are the things that get in the way of the realization of the full vision of humanity. Here's a couple other examples of how the systems and the powers work themselves out into this world. Um, Liliana Mason, in her brilliant book, Uncivil Agreement, writes this about politics and the psychology of politics. Group victory is a powerful prize, and American partisans have increasingly seen that goal as more important than the practical matters of governing a nation. In other words, what is the system, what is the structure of existence that is keeping us from truly realizing the full vision of humanity? A two-party system that puts us now at odds with one another, where we care more about beating the other person than actually governing a nation according to justice and according to love and according to equality, according to all those things. We are now within a system, a structure of existence that we are fighting against. Walter Lippmann in his book, Public Opinion, uh, suggests that the idea of journalism is founded upon, in our entire democracy, is founded upon the idea of an omnicompetent citizen. It's the idea that in order for us to truly engage with our political system, we have to know a lot of things about a lot of things. It's just insane how much we have to know, how much we have to read, and that's just really not possible. And so because of this idea, because of this reality, we are now stuck with journalism that has to make decisions. What goes above the fold? What goes below the fold? And especially a journalism that is predicated on the idea of clickbait that we have to now get clicks in order to sustain our business model. This isn't about getting the very, very best information to the citizens. No, we're now in a system in which journalism itself is fighting, is struggling against a structure of existence and having to make serious, difficult, challenging choices regarding how do we do this work. And painfully relevant, uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith in their book Divided by Faith write about three main structures of existence that have existed within the white church that have perpetuated racism and inequality. These three ideas that they write about are accountable, free will individualism, relationalism, and anti-structuralism. Accountable free will individualism is the idea that if there happens to be anything wrong or anything bad in this world, that really is just about human free will. Let's not talk about systems and structures, let's talk about our own free will. It is not, as people say, a skin problem, but a sin problem. That is one of the ideas that continually gets perpetuated. Relationalism, the idea that the real fix to any systemic problems is about people getting to know one another. It's that simple. And that has manifested itself in its, the third idea, which is anti-structuralism. Because the kind of faith and the kind of religion that has grown up within the church is really about individualism and really about relationalism and really about sin, what we call sin. Therefore, any fight against the structure really has nothing to do with our faith and our religion. And those kinds of ideas make their way into the pews. And then you add on top of that kind of the free market of religious ideas and expressions in America and you get this conclusion that they write about. The Organization of American Religion encourages religious groups to cater to people's existing preferences rather than their ideal callings. And so, 
you have this continual structure of existence that's continually perpetuating the idea of individualism, relationalism, and anti-structuralism in the church. Which is why 20 years later, Jamar Tisby is writing the same thing and fighting against the same structure. In his book, The Color of Compromise, he writes, To be clear, friendships and conversations are necessary, but they are not sufficient to change the racial status quo. Christians must also alter how impersonal systems operate so that they might create and extend racial equality. Impersonal systems, rulers, powers, authorities, spiritual forces, and cosmic powers of this dark world? Yes. In other words, not only is journalism and media and technology a structure of existence that we are struggling and fighting against, so is American religion. American religion that continually perpetuates this idea of individualism, relationalism, and anti-structuralism is itself a continued structure of existence. We are fighting against that in order to bring about the vision of humanity that God has intended for us. Friends, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the methods, for our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." against the technologies, against the social media algorithms, against the political systems, against systemic racism, and institutionalized marginalization of peoples. And even against American religious ideas and ideals. N.T. Wright writes this in his book, There is no justification for seeing apocalyptic as necessarily speaking of the end of the world in a literally cosmic sense. An end to the present world order, yes. The end of the space-time world, no. The end to the present world order. This is what I mean when I say our struggle is real. Not up there somewhere, down here, every day. Our ancestors fought against structures of earthly existence, the Roman Empire, Greek philosophy, human trade, and commerce. We today, my friends, are still fighting against structures of earthly existence. There are things like the government and the state and the legislation that continually gets perpetuated through those systems against an economy that prioritizes certain people groups, that rewards the wealthy, and punishes the poor. And religious and philosophical ideas and ideals that are more about me as an individual and less about the system. Given our particular context and everything that's been happening recently, I thought it appropriate to reread MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail. And in it, I find, um, I find the struggle Listen to some of the, this is just an excerpt. 
I have watched white churches stand on the sideline and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard so many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between body and soul, the sacred and the secular. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and fear of being nonconformists. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I am meeting young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. As I was thinking about MLK's words, I was reflecting on how how we are still struggling. We're still fighting against these structures of earthly existence, against these cosmic forces, against these ideas. And I was reflecting upon my upbringing within the church and our cultural celebration of MLK. And I was thinking, you know, it is a real dishonoring of MLK to celebrate MLK and the civil rights movement for their peaceful, nonviolent protests, right? This is what we celebrate them for. But it is a dishonoring of them and that entire movement and of King himself to raise that up, the nonviolent movement, as the epitome of what it meant to push the civil rights movement forward, to only ignore the systemic changes that they were calling for. The structural changes in, in what MLK called the fierce urgency of now. It, we are still struggling, wrestling, fighting against the same systems, the same structures of existence. Now, as soon as I start talking this way, and as soon as any church or any people who claim to be Christians start talking about systemic changes, a lot of people usually rebut and say, but aren't you getting political? And uh, this is usually a retort to say, we're not supposed to be political. But here's what I've come to understand. People who usually use that phrase, use it to say, you're now talking about things that I am uncomfortable with. And what is underlying the retort of you're getting political, what is really at the foundation of it, is that you are now bringing up things, systems, structures, political realities that are actually working for me. I already have the political power. And so for you to bring up systemic changes is to now get political. And what I mean by that is don't mess with the political status quo because it's working for me. And what I think needs to be said and understood as part of the Jesus movement because they had a vision for a, 
a brilliant new way of being human, an existential reality, an existential vision for humanity, is, is this, I, I'm summarizing from N.T. Wright, is to depoliticize Christianity is to dehistoricize it. It is to remove Jesus from the faith and to remove the faith of Jesus from the real struggle of real people. This early Christian movement absolutely was political, and it fought against rulers and authorities, spiritual forces, cosmic powers of this dark world. That struggle is a real struggle that they faced and that we are still facing today. In the words of the author of Ephesians, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. My friends, this struggle is real. As we move into a time of communion, you'll see the words of institution. And I would encourage you, as you read through them, to consider carefully the flesh and the blood of Jesus being laid down to fight against these cosmic forces, against these rulers, against these authorities, and how the resurrection of Jesus empowers us and inspires us to continue the fight and the struggle. Because the Jesus way has shown that these systems can be overcome. And we didn't even have time today to get into how the Jesus movement did that, but we today exist. Our faith tradition continues on because these early followers did overcome those systems and they created an entirely new vision of humanity that was realized, not just in the spiritual realm, but here on earth as it is in heaven. So my friends, let us commune together by taking the body and the blood of Jesus as a sacrament and as a reminder of this movement to celebrate and to commemorate and to commission us once again into this way, into this struggle, into this life. <laughs>